Last time I spoke about the anointing of Jesus. Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister, anoints Jesus with a, with a very expensive perfume. And the perfume cost was, was actually a year's salary, so very, very expensive. And she pours it on Jesus in adoration of him. Um, of course, Mary would have been grateful for what Jesus had done for her brother and in and, and bringing him back from the dead. This is part of the reason that she does this, that she anoints Jesus. She's so thankful to him for what he's done, and she's worshiping him by doing this. Um, she also recognized who he was, maybe even more so now that he had raised her brother and, and that he had shown this great authority and power over death. And I'm sure Martha had shared with Mary what Jesus had said to her, that I am the resurrection and the life. And so she recognizes who, she, who he is. She falls down at his feet and anoints him with perfume and dries his feet with her hair. When Judas protests, Jesus defends Mary, and he says, she did this in preparation for my burial. Jesus knows what is about to happen. He, he, he recognized the significance of what Mary is doing, and, and he shares with everyone what, what Mary is doing here, what's actually happening, and what's about to happen to him. She came in thankfulness. She came in adoration. And her gift is a symbolic, prep, uh, symbolic preparation of what's to come, his death and his burial. Uh, in a way, it's also a symbolic preparation of what's immediately to come. Um, Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem as Israel's king. And that's where we are this morning. So let's take a look again at, at our passage. John 12, starting in verse 12, it says, The next day, meaning the next day after Mary anoints Jesus, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the next day is the day after the feast that is held in Jesus's honor in Bethany. And remember, a large crowd had come to Bethany to see Jesus, and, and not only to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. They had heard that he had been raised from the dead. This news had spread not only to Jerusalem, but it had also spread among the people that were visiting Jerusalem for Passover. And so I'm, I'm sure many of those who had gone to Bethany the day before were part of this crowd uh, that we read about in John 12. And as he rides into Jerusalem, there, there's a few cultural things happening here that I think are easy for us to miss, especially since we are 2,000 years removed from, from this event. It says that when the crowd heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Why would they do that? Why would they take palm branches and go out to meet him? Um, palm leaves were used in two festivals that the Jews celebrated. The first was the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was also used in the Feast of Dedication, which is also called Hanukkah. And, and they were used as a part of worship. So this isn't a new thing that the crowd just all of a sudden decided to do. Palm leaves were used in worship by the Jews already in these festivals. And the Jewish people would spend 
seven days in, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would spend seven days in celebration of God's provision for his people. And, and they would make these booths made out of palm leaves and palm branches. Um, and it was all in remembrance of what Jesus, or what, sorry, what God had done for them as they wandered in the, in the wilderness, as, as they had escaped Egypt. And God actually commands Israel to do this, to celebrate this way. In Leviticus 23, he gives instructions on, on what to do and how to celebrate this festival of tabernacles. Um, in the festival of dedication, or Hanukkah, the Jews celebrated their victory over the Seleucid Empire. Um, it's a Greek empire, and their leader, Antiochus, who had occupied Israel for several years and, among other things, had desecrated their temple. We looked at this a few months ago when we studied chapter 10. Um, Jesus comes into Jerusalem during, the, during Hanukkah, during the festival of de dedication. And so what's going on in this festival is they're celebrating that Judas Maccabeus one of their leaders had led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, these invaders that had come into their country. And the Jewish people, although it takes time, they're able to overcome the Seleucid Empire through Judas Maccabeus' um, strategies and through their, their revolt against the Seleucid Empire. So what's, what's really interesting, and the reason I bring this up, is the parallel to our passage in John 12 today and to what happens when Judas Maccabeus enters Jerusalem after the victory, after they, they kick out Antiochus and his men, he's actually greeted with palm branches waving in the air in celebration of his victory. He had set the Jews free from their oppressors, and he was responsible for the cleansing and the rededication of the temple. That's why it's called the festival of dedication. They rededicated the temple. It had been desecrated. And I won't get into that. If you guys want to refresh or you can go back and listen to our John 10 sermon, we get into that. Um, that was in January. But what's most interesting is this parallel here. Um, when Judas Maccabeus enters Jerusalem, again, he's, he's celebrated. He's, they're celebrating what he's done and what they've done by overcoming their oppressors. And commentators believe that this is what the crowd actually had in mind when they go to pick up palm branches to celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem. They believe that Jesus is going to free them from their oppressors, from Rome. This was a common belief about the Messiah, that he would free Israel from their earthly oppressors. Even after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples ask Jesus in Acts 1.6, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And so it's not just the crowd that has this in mind, has this preconceived idea of who Messiah is. It's, it's everybody, even the 11 closest to Jesus. And I say 11 because by this point, Judas had taken his own life. But back to this correlation between Judas Maccabeus and Jesus, the Jews celebrated Hanukkah or the festival of dedication every year. And so it just makes sense that they would think of this. They would think to pick up palm branches and wave them as Jesus arrives. They expect him to be their conquering hero. 
just as Judas Maccabeus was. They assume that Jesus is going to conquer Rome, that he's going to stand up and lead them against their earthly oppressors. And so what does the crowd do? They, they grab these palm branches and they wave them in the air and they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So let's look at these words carefully. The literal meaning of Hosanna is save now or save us now. So the comparison to the festival of dedication and here in John 12 continues to, to, to make sense when we see the crowd crying out, save us. They want the Messiah, they want a Messiah, excuse me, that's going to free them from Rome. And there's really not an understanding of what Jesus has truly come to do, which is to save them from sin and death, not from, not from Rome. In Matthew's gospel, we see the crowd, let me just back up and say, all four gospels give us the account of, of Jesus' victorious entry into Jerusalem. In Matthew's gospel, we see the crowd saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And remember, we don't have to be concerned or worried about different details in these narratives, in the Gospels. The different accounts actually give us a bigger picture of what's going on here. Uh, many of the movies that depict Jesus riding into Jerusalem, like we saw when we were, when we were singing, show people lining the road as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And, and I'm sure that's what it's, it was like. The crowd, I imagine the crowd are shouting out many different things. And, and, and so that's what these four Gospels record. They record different things. In John, we just saw it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Matthew says, Hosanna to the son of David. Mark's account said, says, blessed is the coming of our father David. I'm sure all of these different things were shouted out by the crowd. And, and they're proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, as King. Let's look at the, the next line in, in John. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I think the NLT kind of clears that last part up for us a little bit. It says, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. So, it's plain to see from their words here, from the words of the crowd, that they believe that Jesus was come to be their king, to be the king of Israel. And they really did believe that he had been sent from God. They, they proclaim it, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At this point, everyone knows that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They know that Jesus has a history of healings and a history of miracles. And it's plain to even the most uneducated people that Jesus could only do these things in the power of God. Remember the blind man, what he says to the Pharisees in chapter 9 when they question him? In verse 30 of chapter 9, he says, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he, he's talking about Jesus, comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
And then the, the Pharisees are insulted by this. They just dismiss him and, and kick him out of the temple. So my point here is that there are many, if not everyone, in this crowd in chapter 12 that believe that Jesus has been sent from God. I mean, they're crying it out as, as they wave those palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. And he is the King. He is the Christ come to save them. The problem is that they're just a little bit wrong in their thinking because they think that he's going to save them from Rome. The next verse, verse uh, 14, it quotes a prophecy about the Messiah from Zechariah. And it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. This is from Zechariah 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So why does, why does Jesus ride a donkey into Jerusalem? He didn't need to. He was used to walking long distances. Not that Bethany to Jerusalem was a long distance, but he was physically fit. So that can't be the reason. We're not told that he was tired or unhealthy, so that can't be the reason. Jesus knows the scriptures very well. He knows this passage in Zechariah. He knows what the scriptures say about Messiah, about him. And, and so could we say that Jesus engineered the fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah? Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He, he absolutely did. He absolutely did this on purpose. He knew what the scriptures said about him. But don't let that worry, or worry you that Jesus would do that. There are dozens of other prophecies about Messiah that Jesus could not have fulfilled by his own will. Um, scholars believe there are over 300 prophecies about Messiah in the Old Testament. Just quickly, a few of these prophecies that Jesus could never have fulfilled by his own will would be one, his birth in Bethlehem. In Micah 5, it tells us that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Another one, David was told by God in 2 Samuel 7 that God would establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. And Matthew 1 gives us Jesus' genealogy tracing all the way back to King David. That's, that's on his father Joseph's side, though. So some people may say, well, if Mary was really a virgin, then... Why would that matter? But Luke 3 also gives us Jesus' genealogy on Mary's side, and Mary's side also traces all the way back to King David. Just a couple more I'll give you. Isaiah 40 tells us that the Messiah would be preceded by a voice calling out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist confirms in chapter 1, verse 23, that he is that voice. Zechariah has another prophecy related to the Messiah. In chapter 11 of Zechariah, it says that the Messiah would be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. And there are many, many more Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfills. And so Jesus trying, trying to fulfill this, this prophecy is not a problem. In fact, the reason that Jesus blatantly does this, choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, is that he's publicly revealing himself as Messiah. All the Jews would know Zechariah's prophecy was about the Messiah. Unfortunately, now, 
a lot of modern rabbis, modern Jewish rabbis, deny a lot of these messianic prophecies, or they want to try to explain them differently. But there is evidence that ancient rabbis historically saw these passages as about the Messiah, as messianic. So what, what the people in Jerusalem didn't understand was that was the whole prophecy in Zechariah. We're only given verse 9. Verse 10 explains a lot more, actually. And, and I'm, I'm going to read that for you guys. Let me read verse 9 again. It says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then the next verse, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. In this passage in Zechariah, the Messiah is portrayed as a king coming in peace, not one mounted on a war horse. Remember, Jesus is the prince of peace. And he's not riding into Jerusalem on a war horse. He's riding in on an animal that represents peace and represents humility, just as Zechariah prophesied. And when we read this, we, we read it in hindsight, and we kind of wonder why no, one, why no one got it, but we can't be too hard on them. That This is what everybody believed about the Messiah. And even the disciples, the ones who had spent the most time with Jesus, believed this about Messiah. In verse 16 of our passage in, in John 12, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Jesus promises the disciples later in John chapter 14 and 16 that he will send the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and to teach them, which obviously does happen. But in this moment, the disciples are oblivious to what's actually going on. I mean, they believe that he's Messiah, but they don't really know what that truly means. In Mark 10, James and John ask Jesus if they can sit at his right hand and his left hand when he establishes his kingdom. They think he's going to overcome Rome. And they want to be in positions of authority. They want to be his right-hand men when that happens. They're still thinking in terms of worldly rule and worldly reign. On the road to Emmaus, the disciples are so confused. This was after Jesus had died. And, and he had died not as the conquering Messiah that they expected. He had died like a criminal on a cross. Luke 24 verse 21 says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. In other words, they thought he would conquer Rome. And in their minds anyway, he, he still hadn't risen like he said he would on the third day. But they had no idea they were actually talking to Jesus himself. They just didn't recognize him. He had risen, but he hadn't been the Messiah that they thought he would be. In some ways, the disciples and the other first century Jews are not wrong. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah as a conquering king, as a warrior king. 
They've been taught for centuries who the Messiah is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. We have it right in front of us, right? We have the Gospels written out. They didn't have that. We have Paul's letters explaining in depth who the Messiah was and and what he came to do. So again, we can't criticize them too much. They were going off of what everybody else believed, that he was going to come, set them free, establish his kingdom that he would be king of, and then he would rule the earth. And Jesus will do that when he returns, when he comes back. We, know, we all know that now. He will be king. But they didn't know that those prophecies in the Old Testament were talking, were twofold about the Messiah. That some of them are talking about his first coming, and some of them are talking about his second coming. And it's, it's really the prophecies about the second coming that the first century Jews thought about Jesus, that he was to be a conquering king. In John chapter 12, the crowd understood that Jesus was presenting himself publicly as their Messiah and as their king. This was the moment. He wasn't hiding it anymore. He was proclaiming it. Uh, What they didn't understand was what becoming their Messiah, becoming their Savior, was going to require. It wasn't going to require defeating and expelling Rome it was going to require him dying on the cross to save us from our sin, to save us from death. When Jesus came, his message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, is at hand. So he didn't storm the capital, he didn't storm Jerusalem and wipe everybody who opposed him out. He came on a donkey, and afterwards he continued to preach about what his kingdom looked like. It was and is a kingdom bringing peace. And not temporary peace like the world offers, but peace in our hearts, peace with God. Jesus wasn't riding in triumph in a way that an earthly king would have. He was riding into Jerusalem to die, to sacrifice his life for ours. But let me be clear, he was riding in triumph to sacrifice himself for us. He was about to triumph over another kingdom, though. He was about to triumph not over Rome, but over sin and death itself. The kingdom of God is not a political kingdom. Israel expected the kingdom of God meant God's reign and rule in Israel. But we know, we know it's not physical, not yet anyway. It will be in the future, when he returns, when Jesus comes back. But right now, it's the rule of God in our hearts, the hearts of his people. This was not a kingdom that most people in Israel wanted, though. They wanted Rome to be forcefully removed. They wanted the Messiah to prove that they were God's people and that no one should mess with them, not Rome, not anyone. They wanted to say, we are God's chosen people and no one has the right to occupy our land. They wanted their pride indulged, and when it wasn't, they not only rejected Jesus, but they turned on him. Days later, this same crowd shouts out to Pilate, crucify him. John 1.11 says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And why? Why did they not receive him? Because they wanted someone else. 
they, they were expecting someone else and they missed it. They missed him and all that he wanted to do for them. In Luke's account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem in Luke 19, Luke tells us that Jesus weeps after, over Jerusalem. It says in, in Luke 19, verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't see it. They missed it. Forty years later, Jerusalem and the temple would be leveled just like Jesus says here. So why did they reject him? Because they wanted someone else. They wanted a conquering king. And as I was researching this sermon, I came across another author who had written on the same subject. He, he writes his conclusion so eloquently that I just have to read it to close us out this morning. It says, In our Christian lives, as we grow older, we all encounter situations in which God does not fulfill our expectations. Perhaps he doesn't bring a marriage partner into your life, or maybe you find that your marriage hasn't lived up to its expectations. Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion or a position that you really deserve, or maybe illness or tragedy has struck your life in an unexpected way. And the temptation in all these situations is to bail out of the Christian faith, to bail out of what Christianity teaches and to do things your own way. You marry that non-Christian who's in love with you. You file for divorce. You grow resentful and bitter over missed opportunities. You give up confidence in God's love for you and you no longer trust him. As I've grown older as a Christian, I've seen these sorts of things happen again and again in the lives of Christian friends. When God doesn't live up to our expectations, then we jettison God and do things the way we think they should be done or resent him for not giving us what we want. And what I want to say here is that Jesus is Lord. He's under no obligation to live up to your expectations. If he chooses to give you a life of suffering and hardship, of disappointment and failure, he is Lord. So many of us seem to think that if Christ doesn't fit our expectations, then we'll just reject him as the crowds in Jerusalem did. But Christ is Lord and he doesn't have to fit our expectations of him. Christ never promised his followers a happy life. The disciple is not above his master and the master has chosen the road to Golgotha. If you are called to tread that same path, that is the master's prerogative. It, it's his right. What I'm saying is that we must tailor our expectations to what God decrees, not try to tailor God to fit our expectations. If we try to make him fit our expectations, what is acceptable to us or else we reject him, then that is the path to self-destruction. We must not be like the people in Jerusalem who hailed Christ as their king just so long as he fit their image of what a king should be. 
Let us rather acknowledge him truly as our king, our Lord, our sovereign, and receive from his hand whatever he decrees. Let me read John 1.11 again. It says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But what does verse 12 say? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born of God. And then verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So church, this morning, let us not miss it. Let's not miss what he's done and what he continues to do and what he wants to do in each of our lives. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he does enter victoriously. He does enter as king, and he does enter as Messiah, come to save us by his victory over sin and death. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together.